Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Lloyd Richardson, a Reagan-era diplomat, a China and CCP expert, a global attorney, amongst many other things, and today's topic is truth and lies about the Chinese Communist Party. Lloyd Richardson, thank you for joining us today on The Shilling Show Unleashed. Yes, Rob, happy to be here. Tell us a little bit about your own experience in covering China, because you have quite a long history. Well, sad to say, Rob, I've actually been in the China field since 72. Mm. I did my undergraduate work in Asian history and Chinese, and 1980s, I was in the Foreign Service uh, during Reagan's presidency, where I worked on Taiwan arms sales and was at the Secretary's policy planning staff for a year. I, I will say that by that point in time, uh, it was pretty clear that what the Chinese were up to by the end of the 1980s, stealing U.S. intellectual property as fast as they could. During the 1990s, actually, I was a lawyer in Virginia, and I watched Clients over that decade just disappear as jobs were offshored to China. In the past 10 or 12 years, I've been in the international development field, so I've been able to see firsthand China's influence in places like Pakistan and Kenya and other parts of Africa. Yeah, this is a topic that's near and dear to my heart. I think there's a big dichotomy in how we look at the Chinese and how we refer to them and how they talk about us and refer to us. So how should we be classifying them versus how do we, and how do the Chinese look at us? It's important to understand that, first of all, the CCP, yes. these are not nice, nice people. It's important to understand that. In the first 25 years they were in power in China, they, they were responsible for the deaths of 80 million of their own people. So there, are, there isn't much that they will, uh, will stop at, I guess. This tradition really goes back to the 1950s when they started the non-allied movement in an attempt to to counter Western influence around the globe. I think the thing that I find a little, I guess, most disturbing is that in 2018, Xi Jinping actually declared a new 30-year war against the United States. And for some reason, that seems to have been pretty well lost in the press. And the way the Chinese do war... They understand that, at least until you could say that currently they are starting to come into parity in a military and strategic sense with the United States in in some, at least in some aspects. But they engage what's called what they call unrestricted warfare. This is a concept that they brought to light first in 1999. Greg Copley, who's a fellow writes in Washington, has written about this. He uses the term total war. Whether you call it unrestricted or total war, the whole point is this isn't just kinetic military confrontation. It's an attack on 
the U.S. and and the rest of the West that goes to our economy, our culture, our society. The Chinese try to avoid military confrontation because they know or they believe they can win the war uh, with us through through other means, such as these attacks on our on our economy and society. So as we look at this, I think it's also important to point out, you mentioned that the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership is not, uh, they are not nice people, they don't share values with us. And what I've heard is they have really no value for the lives of their own citizens, unlike the United States of America, where we try to protect U.S. citizens. Is that a correct evaluation? Oh, I think so. From the CCP's point of view, remember their modern economy, which they've developed since the 1980s, is really very narrow, focused along the coast in places like Shenzhen and Shanghai. So maybe three to 500 million people at best of Chinese citizens are engaged in that economy. But people forget that there's another billion people sitting in the countryside whose lives really haven't changed in 100 years. So there's this constant pressure. I think of the CCP as rather like a shark. If they don't keep moving they die. So they have to constantly deal with repression on the home front to ensure that they have the latitude to deal with those of us, such as the United States, whom they perceive as being their global enemies. Speaking of global, I'd love to talk about the global influence of the CCP because this reaches uh, far beyond the borders of China. Uh, Let's first start with Africa and what is the influence and how are they doing this? I actually lived in Kenya for 2011 and 2012, so a little over 10 years ago. And even though I've followed China issues for a long time, I was frankly shocked living in Nairobi at how pervasive, even at that point in time, the the Chinese influence was there. This was already understood, like the man in the street in Africa. They were already buying and selling presidents and prime ministers in Africa, been able over the last 20 years to secure uh, enormous mineral rights in in Africa throughout the continent. And they're everywhere in the continent. Uh, On one trip when I was in East Africa, I had to go to Luanda in Angola for some work. And when you flew into Luanda, and this is in 2012, so over a decade ago, there were construction cranes all over the skyline that you'd see from the airplane as you as you came into the airport. And this was just representative of, of how deeply involved the Chinese were. I mean, all of the construction for 20 years has been has been performed in China. There is no domestic industry. So between the political and the economic influence, they've basically had their way in, in Africa for at least 20 years now. What is the position of the people, the everyday man or woman in Africa, toward the Chinese? Is there resentment over this, or are they just accepting of it? That's a great question. In 2012, I would have said that the man in the street, and I had a lot of, because I worked in the Kenyan government, I wasn't at the embassy or anything. Mm -hmm. I actually went to work every day in one of the Kenyan government ministries. You would talk to people, and they thought very highly of the Chinese because the Chinese were coming in and actually delivering projects that people could see. They built roads, they built bridges, uh, they built railroads. So people thought that that was great. But if you talk to those same people now, uh, a decade later, they're 
very suspicious because they have come, never mind the, the political elites, but the man in the street has come to understand that there's a, a real price to be paid for the Chinese presence there. And so I think that the opinion of, of common people in Africa has, has swung 180 degrees over this past decade, which is a positive side, I would say. How about places like South America or Europe? Is the same level of influence being exerted in those places? Absolutely. The Chinese are, are very busy. Most recently, you know, there's been this BRICS meet, what they call this BRICS meeting, right? Brazil, Russia, India, and China, which is a, a sort of an economic block that the Chinese have organized to, again, to try to blunt Western influence around the globe. But they met in South Africa just in the last month. And the goal there is not only to have trade among themselves to insulate themselves from Western influence to some degree, but they're, as you may be aware, are even trying to supplant the the U.S. dollar yes. as the globe's uh, reserve currency, which is a very troubling development. This is not just in in places like Latin America, Brazil and, and others. They're also very busy, of course, in, in Europe as well. Although I'm impressed that slowly we were beginning to see some pushback from uh, Western European governments on that front. And how about the relationship between the Chinese and the Australians? That has been uh, one of at least some hostility, but have they worked together in recent years? I, you know, I have not followed that as, as closely as I perhaps might have, Rob. But certainly, certainly the Australians, for a time, I think under the current government, they're doing a little better, but for a number of years, it was clear that they were considering, as the Chinese influence in the Pacific expanded for a time there, they thought, the Australians, that is, thought that they could benefit from that growing economic influence. And I think perhaps they're, they're learning that that may be a dangerous game to play. And of course, in India, which is the world's largest democracy, over the past decade, the Chinese have moved very aggressively in the Indian Ocean, essentially, to encircle India, which has its own blue water navy. But the Chinese have expanded their navy substantially. And now they are the dominant player economically, certainly in Southeast Asia. And they have a relationship with Pakistan, which is also very troubling, because through that they have basically completed the encirclement of India and now have land access from China, from Western China, down to the Indian Ocean through Pakistan. They've been very busy in, in Southeast Asia. So noticing and acknowledging this hostility and, and border squabbles and other things, India and China have not gotten along well. So how is it that India could be a part of BRICS along with China? I think that's a legacy, mm. you know, for a hundred years, India lives with a socialist government starting really in the late 1900s. There are a lot of people in the, again, in the political elites there who think that they can cozy up to people like China and Russia and not pay a price for it. But I think the current government, the BJP in India, has been a little more astute. And as you, as you I think, alluded to, I mean, they actually had direct military confrontation with China in 2020 on the borders. So I think the current government is a lot smarter, but they still, I think, like to keep some distance from the United States and India. 
and even though in the last, well, since really the early Bush administration, the relationship between India and the United States, I think, is greatly improved. I think there's still a, a lingering notion in, in the Indian government that they can somehow have it both ways and, and in a sense, play both ends against the middle. It sounds, Lloyd Richardson, as if there is somewhat of a turning going on, at least in some of the places that we talked about. And how is this affecting the Chinese, the CCP plans for global dominance? Well, you've seen recently a, a couple of highlights just over the past two months. You note know, how are things changing? Uh, the Pew Research Center, which is not exactly what you'd call a conservative yeah. body, released a, a study that they had done, a poll in late July, showing that Americans now name China as the number one threat to the United States. So the American people are obviously starting to figure this out. 50% now of Americans recognize that China is a problem for us. And the, the next contender, Russia, is at 17% in that poll. So the people are catching on. And even in our political elites, slowly you're beginning to see awareness and I think the most positive thing from my perspective would be that, that this concern about China, it, it seems to be on both sides of the aisle, at least to some extent, so that both parties are in the Congress are beginning to recognize and support legislation that would curtail some of the worst of Chinese influence, at least in the United States. But obviously we have a, a long way to go. But recognition of the problem is obviously the first step. The Ceiling Show Unleashed podcast. Our guest is Lloyd Richardson. We continue in just a moment. Support this podcast online at shillingshow.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Shillingshowmedia.com will take your project from conception to completion. Shillingshowmedia.com is reasonably priced and highly professional. Need a website for your business? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Need a video created or edited? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Have a photography or graphic design project? Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. Shillingshowmedia.com is your one-stop shop for websites, audio and video production, and photography. Visit Shillingshowmedia.com. That's Shillingshowmedia.com. Shilling Show Unleashed. Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues. Lloyd Richardson is with us. We're talking about truth and lies about the Chinese Communist Party and the influence of China worldwide. I want to go to the topic of Chinese aggression because this is manifested in a number of ways. But I first want to talk about military aggression. Have the Chinese, particularly their Navy, become more aggressive in recent years? And if so, in what ways? Well, they clearly have a very focused interest on the South China Sea, and there are both air and and naval encounters, shall we say, between U.S. military forces and Chinese forces there. There are, of course, from the Chinese perspective, mineral rights at stake in the South China Sea. The most pernicious part of this is not so much the direct contact between U.S. and, and Chinese military forces, however, is the fact that the, the Chinese use their power projection capabilities, especially their Navy, to intimidate and control the behavior of governments in Southeast Asia. 
through this mechanism. Is their Navy presently superior to the United States Navy? Because I keep hearing people discussing that, that we've fallen behind. I would suspect that the tide is beginning to turn, although, again, there appears to be some awareness of this uh, at DOD, although this administration has not been very aggressive at, at our own defense spending. So that's a problem. There is recognition in the U.S. government that more needs to be done to ensure at least parity uh, in the naval front. When we talk about Chinese aggression, there's certainly been multiple and ongoing threats towards Taiwan. A lot of discussion, particularly amongst uh, Republican candidates, about how they would handle this if they had been elected president or will be elected president. So how seriously should we take this, these threats towards Taiwan, and what should the United States' position be? So you have to go back a little bit. When Nixon and Kissinger turned to China in the early 70s, they did it because they hoped to use China uh, as a foil to Soviet power. And I think as far as it went, that was a successful diplomatic tactic at the time. But I think they didn't foresee that under administrations like Carter, uh, as early as the late 70s, the United States de-recognized the Republic of China and recognized the CCP as the legitimate government of China, opening the door, of course, to China's ability to participate in the United Nations system and influence and through their own policy, but also to isolate Taiwan. But the Taiwan Relations Act was passed immediately after recognition in 1970. The recognition occurred in 78. And the Republican-controlled Congress at the time passed the Taiwan Relations Act. And although the Taiwan Relations Act was couched deliberately with some ambiguity, it was clear that the intent of Congress is that we would support Taiwan against any kind of military invasion from China. And that, I think, has been an unwritten uh, rule of of the road, so to speak, since that time. What I think concerns me most about situation in Taiwan currently is, as you noted, we have elections coming uh, in 2024. The current incumbent in the White House, whatever one may think of that, is clearly not a, what should we say, an antagonist of the Chinese Communist Party, and perhaps uh, is in the CCP's pocket. We don't have all the facts on that just yet. So I guess what concerns me is the timing over the next 18 months, and, and especially given the economic crisis that the Chinese are starting to confront at home with their own economy, does this in fact make the CCP feel like they're backed into a corner? They look at what's going on in Washington and they decide, well, it's worth the gamble. So do they decide that in the next 18 months, this is the right moment in history to to launch an attack on Taiwan because the U.S. government and the, our defense establishment will not respond appropriately, and they'll be successful. Certainly in the last couple of years, the CCP has totally shut down any even hint at democracy in Hong Kong. So if you live in Taiwan, you have to be very concerned about the current situation. Lloyd, in addition to military aggression, there's a lot of economic aggression going on, Chinese Communist Party toward the United States, but other nations as well yet it's not quite as visible to the average person. So what's going on behind the scenes economically? Well, one of the things that we have generally failed to recognize 
in the past decades is that we we have run this enormous trade deficit with China, certainly since the 90s and even in the back into the 1980s. And I think what people don't recognize is that all of those dollars that the the Chinese earn from the imbalance in in the trade, they turn right around and use to buy influence in places like Africa, Latin America, all these places that we've mentioned, Southeast Asia. In effect, the United States is funding China's global aggression against us, which to me is just not a great strategy. Do we have alternatives? In other words, are there other places where we could obtain these goods, particularly things that we're critically reliant upon? Well, we created this situation. I mean, initially, I think it was just greed on the part of some of our business community in the 80s and particularly the 90s. But I think what happened and the tipping point, I think, came in the 1990s where so many companies had started to outsource manufacturing to China and gain the competitive advantage, the cost advantage of doing that, that basically our entire industry across most sectors was forced to do that. If you look at so many areas of our consumer goods now, it's all you know stamped made in China, right? Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's across the board. But we created this situation, and clearly there are alternatives. No one company can work against that just by itself and deal with the, the higher costs I think there's going to have to be a transition period, and this is where Congress really needs to take action. The very first step, as Trump did, you know, you have to impose these import tariffs on China to try to get some semblance of balance back into that relationship. But I think it needs to go much further than that. I think there need to be things like changes in the tax law that encourage U.S. companies to source that those supply lines to Southeast Asia, to India. Of course, India, you know, has gained a lot, much larger share over the past decade, but there's certainly more that could be done. Or, or Central America. We don't even have to go that far afield. You know, why not source in Mexico, you know, our, our immediate neighbor? Never mind Africa, where textiles, you know, there are all these programs that have existed for decades attempting to encourage textiles, for example, to be manufactured and giving them access to the U.S. market. Well, what's happened in Africa, though, is the Chinese have come in basically and bought out those manufacturing rights and through cutouts, if you'll pardon the pun in the textile field, you know, they're they're basically getting the, the benefit of those quotas that have been assigned and are supposed to help poor economies in Africa, and the Chinese are taking advantage of them. So we have to be a little bit smart about this. How about the issue and the problem of the Chinese acquiring property, particularly farmland, but other property-sensitive locations in the United States of America? Is that a congressional issue, and could that be addressed via legislation? It can, and actually, it's all what the one of, again one of the more encouraging signs to me is state legislatures who have gotten tired of waiting around for the Congress to move on this have started to ban purchases of agricultural land in the United States within their own states. A number of states have already taken that step. So clearly, but we know which states are doing that, right? I mean, they're red states. They're not They're not going to be blue states who are doing that. So clearly, this is a strategic issue. This is a problem for the United States as a whole. And congressional action would certainly be, be welcome on this front. 
Finally, Lloyd Richardson, if we look to the next presidency and assuming it's uh, somebody new other than who's in there now, uh, what would you advise the top three things or so that they ought to do immediately regarding the Chinese Communist Party? Remembering that they are engaged in a total war against us, which they have openly declared since 2018. Number one, the one, the thing, first recognition of the problem, obviously, but then beyond that, the top three things it seems to me is, as we've noted, start working on this so-called free trade problem. Make sure that there is some fairness in the trade relationship with China. But remembering that this is total war, not just targeted at our military and strategic issues, we've got to do a better job at protecting our military and industrial technology. So we need to do a better job of countering their industrial and flat out military espionage in the United States. And then remembering the culture war, we've got to do things like ban TikTok. It just, you just have to do these things. I mean, to allow someone like the Chinese Communist Party to get direct access to our young people, teens and preteens, without any intervention or any adult having any gatekeeping in that process, to me, is, is just mindless. It sounds like we've got an awful lot of work to do, but you're right on track. Lloyd Richardson, if people would like to follow your work and your efforts online, is there a place we can do that? Yes, I have a website, lloydrichardson.com, and I have a China policy tab where you can download a white paper that I've done to discuss some of these things that we need to be doing and provide a little background to these issues. I would urge people to download that white paper. It's incumbent on all of us to become more involved and more aware of this threat because it's not going away on its own. Lloyd Richardson, thank you so much for joining us today on the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Thank you, Rob. Thank you so much for your time, and thank you for what you're doing. That concludes another edition of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com, where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time...